the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider on this Palm Sunday weekend, the start of Holy Week, a week that includes the Triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday an extraordinary and privileged time in our lives as Christians for whom the Son of God came down to earth as man and where, by his death and resurrection, he redeemed humanity. A look at the news highlights in a moment, but first a word about the special I've prepared for what is normally the interview segment. As you know, the mystery of the death and resurrection of Christ is celebrated every year throughout the Christian world during Holy Week. What you may not know is that as worshipers gather to commemorate Christ's passion, scientists have been studying the result of tests made on an object allegedly to be directly connected with the passion. The object of intense religious devotion, as well as scientific curiosity, is a simple strip of linen known as the Shroud of Turin. It has been venerated by Christians for centuries as the burial cloth that wrapped the body of Jesus Christ in his tomb after his crucifixion and death. I explore the provenance and history of that relic, as well as the scientific tests that have been done over the years in order to find an answer to the question, who is the man of the shroud? Part 1 this weekend. And now some of the week's news highlights. Sunday, March 26th. After reflections on the day's gospel and reciting the Angelus with the faithful in St. Peter's Square, the Holy Father asked for prayers for war-torn Ukraine, victims of the tornado in Mississippi, USA, and earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria. He also prayed for peace and reconciliation in Peru. Monday, March 27th. Pope Francis met with seminarians and bishops from the Italian region of Calabria, and encouraged them to adapt a priestly formation to the signs of the times and to walk together in unity and fraternity. Noting that, despite often making headlines for crime-related incidents, Calabria has a precious cultural and spiritual heritage that unites the East and the West. And the Pope remarked, without a renewed commitment to promote evangelization and priestly formation, that heritage dating back to Greek times risks remaining only a beautiful past to be admired. Also Monday, Pope Francis applauded the benefits of technology and artificial intelligence when used for the common good, but also warned against using AI unethically or irresponsibly. He did so when addressing the Minerva Dialogues, a high-level annual gathering of scientists and experts organized by the Vatican's Dicastery for Education and Culture. The assembly brings together experts from the world of technology, scientists, engineers, business leaders, lawyers, philosophers, and representatives of the Church, curial officials, theologians, and ethicists, with the aim of studying and fostering greater awareness of the social and cultural impact of digital technologies, especially artificial intelligence. Also Monday, in a telegram sent to Bishop Peter Kohlgraf of Mainz, Germany, Pope Francis paid tribute to the life and service of Cardinal Karl Joseph Rauber, a former apostolic nuncio who died on Sunday. 
Tuesday, March 28th. It was announced that Pope Francis has sent 10,000 various medicines to Turkey to assist people recovering from February's massive earthquake. The papal onliner has sent the medicines in collaboration with the Turkish Embassy to the Holy See. Wednesday, March 29th, the Vatican released a telegram of the Holy Father, signed by the Cardinal Secretary of State, for the victims of a shooting in a school in Nashville, USA. Pope Francis presided at the weekly general audience in St. Peter's Square, again focusing on apostolic zeal and dedicating the first of two catechesis to St. Paul. Not long afterwards, in mid-afternoon, Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni issued a terse one-sentence statement announcing, quote, The Holy Father is at Gemelli Hospital since this afternoon for some previously scheduled checkups. Thursday, March 30th, a morning bulletin from the Holy See Press Office said, quote, His Holiness Pope Francis rested well overnight. The clinical picture is progressively improving, and he is continuing his planned treatment. This morning, after having breakfast, Pope Francis read some newspapers and resumed work. Before lunch, he went to the chapel of his private hospital apartment, where he spent time in prayer and received the Eucharist. It was later added that the Pope is touched by the many messages received, and he expressed his gratitude for the closeness and prayer. Later Thursday, here's another press office bulletin. Pope Francis spent the afternoon at Gemelli, dedicated to rest, prayer, and some work duties. The following is from the medical personnel who are following the Holy Father at Gemelli Hospital. Quote, In the context of clinical checkups scheduled for the Holy Father, an infectious bronchitis was found that required the administration of an antibiotic therapy on an infusion basis, which produced the expected effects with a clear improvement in his state of health. Based on the possible outcome, the Holy Father could be discharged in the next few days. And by the way, the term infusion refers to IVs, intravenous therapy. Also Thursday, the Vatican released Pope Francis's video and prayer intention for the month of April, in which he urges everyone to pray and work for a nonviolent culture that promotes peace. As the Church marks 60 years since Pope St. John XXIII published his encyclical, Pacem in Terris, Peace on Earth, Pope Francis is calling on Christians to pray for a nonviolent culture. Also Thursday, a joint statement from the Dicastery for Culture and the Dicastery for Integral Human Development formally repudiated, quote, those concepts that fail to recognize the inherent human rights of indigenous peoples, including what has become known as the legal and political doctrine of discovery. Two Vatican departments issued this statement Thursday on the doctrine of discovery and the dignity and rights due to indigenous peoples. The statement said the legal concept of the so-called doctrine of discovery is not part of the teaching of the Catholic Church. Friday, March 31st, the Holy See Press Office said Pope Francis is scheduled to be released from the hospital on Saturday and is expected to be present at the Palm Sunday Mass in St. Peter's Square. The medical bulletin stated, quote, Yesterday went well with a normal clinical course. In the evening, Pope Francis had pizza for dinner, eating with those who are helping him during these days of hospitalization, doctors, nurses, assistants, and members of the gendarmerie. This morning after breakfast, he read some newspapers and went back to work. 
His Holiness's return home to Santa Marta is expected Saturday, April 1st, following the results of the latest tests this morning, Friday. Well, those are the week's highlights. Now, stay tuned for my special titled, Who is the Man of the Shroud? Have a beautiful Palm Sunday, and may you receive many blessings during Holy Week. EWTN, Communicating the Faith. So this is the first time I just put you guys on, and I'm calling in, and it is such a blessing to speak to you. And I want to say to all of your listeners that I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you if you are out there and you are lonely, or you are sad, or you don't feel you have much to praise God about. I am praying for you that you will discover something, and the Lord will really touch your heart today. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scorners. What does that mean? Don't hang around with bad people? No. According to G.K. Chesterton, it means something much better than that. He says that there are certain people who, because they are really pure, create a good atmosphere around themselves. They are truly children of light, and that light shines on everything they touch. So it's not that hanging around bad people makes us bad. It's that being righteous can help make the people around us righteous too. Spend more time with the Apostle of Common Sense. Visit Chesterton.org for more information. And go to EWTNRC.com to discover more books and programs written and inspired by G.K. Chesterton. The reason we pray is first, we owe God worship, thanksgiving, and adoration. He created us and everything around us. And prayer of praise and adoration is His due for giving us everything, including the thought that we praise. And in that thanksgiving, we are made better for realizing what He does for us. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Who is the man of the Shroud of Turin? Can we even answer that question? As you know, the mystery of the death and resurrection of Christ is celebrated every year throughout the Christian world during Holy Week. What you may not know is that as worshipers gather to commemorate Christ's passion, scientists have been studying the results of tests made on an object alleged to be directly associated with that passion. The object of intense religious devotion, as well as scientific curiosity, is a simple strip of linen known as the Shroud of Turin. It has been venerated by Christians for centuries as the burial cloth that wrapped the body of Jesus Christ in his tomb after his crucifixion and death. The 2015 exposition of the Shroud was only the eighth time since 1900 that it has been made available to the public. It was displayed in 1931 for the wedding of Prince Umberto of Savoy with Maria Jose of Belgium. The House of Savoy was the owner of the Shroud for many centuries, but has since given it to the Vatican. The Shroud was displayed again in 1933 to mark the Holy Year called to mark the 19th centenary of the Passion and Death of Christ. In 1973, the world had its first televised showing of the Shroud. 
1978, it was again shown to mark the fourth century of its transfer to Turin from Chambéry in France. Three more showings occurred before the 2015 exposition. One, in 1998, recalled the centenary of the first photograph of the shroud by lawyer Secondopia in 1898, and also the fifth centenary of the Turin Cathedral. Another took place at the Great Jubilee Year 2000, and again an exposition in 2010. The 1978-43 day exposition marked only the fifth time in the last hundred years that this relic of Christianity had received public exposure, and it marked an even rarer occasion for direct access to scientific study. After the public exposition, the shroud was turned over to scientists for brief study in an attempt to clear up centuries of mystery surrounding the cloth. While scientific research has told us much, it does not solve what may forever remain the greatest mystery. Was this Christ's burial cloth? The pure linen cloth of Middle Eastern origin is a simple opaque tissue of fishbone weave measuring 14 by 3.5 feet. It contains the full-length frontal and dorsal imprints of a man and has carmine-colored stains corresponding to blood. It is spangled with a double series of dark spots caused by burns it underwent in a fire in the 16th century and the water used to douse the fire left broad symmetrical rings clearly visible. Less visible but seen upon close observation are transverse marks corresponding to the creases of the linen that before its final voyage to Turin in 1578 had been preserved in its reliquary by folding it in 48 thicknesses. Because the Santa Sindone, the Holy Shroud, lacked fully documented evidence of its provenance prior to surfacing in France in the 14th century, it was assumed that the images had at some point been painted on the linen cloth. In the Middle Ages, controversies arose as to the authenticity of these images and accusations of falsification were prevalent. Proofs were lacking for both sides of the argument and the relic slipped into relative obscurity. However, in 1898, during an eight-day exposition of the shroud, a lawyer and dilettante photographer from Turin, Secondo Pia, who had been commissioned to photograph the shroud by its legal owner, King Umberto I of the House of Savoy, astounded the world with the results of his photographs and reopened the case for the authenticity of the shroud. The original imprints of the man on the linen are a form of the negative in themselves, and thus photographing them produces a negative of a negative, with the result being a startling positive of the subject. The bloodstains and burn marks, however, distinctly impregnated in the material, follow photographic inversion principles and are dark on the original and light on the negative. Photography was then in an embryonic state, but Pia's amateur black and white photographs revealed the dimension of the shroud heretofore never seen and stimulated the imagination of scientists, archaeologists, photographers, theologians, and doctors. At that moment, a multiple study of the famous linen began that continues to the present. Paul Claudel, the eminent French writer, said, The photographic discovery is of such importance, I do not hesitate to compare it to a second resurrection. And so, since 1898, dozens of other prominent men of all walks of life, 
stimulated by scientific motives, intellectual curiosity, or principles of faith, have devoted much of their lives to the study of this, quote, document written in blood. One acknowledged expert in the field of syndenology or study of the shroud was Monsignor Giulio Ricci, at one time president of the Rome Center for Syndenology, who in his 28 years of personal devoted study to the Shroud and in close collaboration with scientists, archaeologists, and theologians, contributed immensely to what we know today about the Shroud and the man of the Shroud. When we first met several decades ago, two life-size transparencies possessing a third-dimensional effect occupied part of his office and he traced inch by inch the anatomical details and individual markings of the shroud and explained their significance. Both he and the shroud told a most wonderful story. I first saw the real shroud in Turin during the 2010 exposition. By far the most outstanding, almost startling aspect of the shroud are the bodily imprints. They reveal the athletic and physically harmonious body of an adult male, approximately five foot six inches tall. The longish hair, beard, and mustache seem well cured, and his face bears a look of almost serene majesty. Closer scrutiny evidences the correctness of certain anatomical particulars. The conventional differences in symmetry, for example, between the right and left sides of a person, and the 1 to 8 ratio in normal head-to-body proportions. These are considered as partial proof for the authenticity of the shroud, as these only fairly recently discovered details could not possibly have been known to an artist forger six centuries ago. The late Monsignor Ricci claimed when we spoke that the man of the shroud was 5 foot 6 inches tall, basing this on archaeological proof of the average height of a Palestinian 2,000 years ago, as well as close studies made of the folds in the shroud. He concluded that the exceptional height that some would wish to attribute to Jesus with a surface glance of the shroud's imprints can be accounted for by numerous folds in the cloth. Exaggerated lengths of certain parts of the anatomy, most notably the right forearm and hand and the anterior print of the tibia, were due to the fact that the linen was folded at these points. The bodily imprints revealed themselves throughout the thicknesses of the folds so that when the shroud was unfolded to its full length, the images appear in full but unnaturally prolongated. By subtracting the amount of material used in folding, as revealed by the crease marks on the shroud, the natural height results in 5 foot 6 inches. Now the body was laid in the lower half of the rectangular cloth with the feet toward the open end. The linen was then folded at the head and laid over the frontal portion of his body until it met at his feet where it was tucked under. Though the burial was hasty, the transverse lines of the cloth indicate it was folded under his chin, beneath his forearms, around the femur, and wrapped both feet. Although impressive, the bodily imprints do not tell the story of the passion and death of this man as vividly as do the carmine color stains. Indicating the rivulets of blood on the back head and forehead, Monsignor Ricci told me that the head had been entirely covered with a helmet and not the traditional crown of sharp thorns, piercing the delicate vascular surface and thus causing numerous wounds and great blood loss. He underscored the fact that throughout oral tradition and written history, the only mention ever made of a crucified man being crowned with thorns is the biblical account of the crucifixion of Christ. 
further bloodstains on the arms, back, shoulders, and legs, and the study of their intensity and directional flow tell the story of a man who had been flagellated, bound by both wrists and ankles, had borne an enormous weight on his shoulders, causing the bruised skin to tear and bleed, and whose wrist, feet, and right side were pierced through by sharp instruments. Though death by crucifixion was common in the days of Christ, a most singular element manifests itself both in the biblical account of Christ's death and on the shroud's imprints. To either hasten or ensure death, a final touch was always added to the crucifixion. The victim's legs were broken. In the case of Christ, however, this was not done, as the Gospels tell us. Instead, his side was pierced with a lance, as evidenced on the shroud by a complex of stains of deep red blood surrounded by a lighter serous liquid. It was, in fact, the scrutiny of the shroud's blood stains, using the most sophisticated techniques and comparing the results with the biblical accounts of the death of Jesus, that convinced Monsignor Ricci and others that this was, indeed, the burial linen of Christ. The stains corroborate in a decisive manner the exegetical account of Christ's ordeal on Calvary. In addition, they support the biochemical laws of blood coagulation and the process of hemolysis and fibrinolysis by which, within a given time span, blood is transferred onto a fabric when the fibrin, a white insoluble protein formed in the process of clotting, is half dissolved neither before nor after. Too few hours of contact with the body would have prevented blood stains from appearing. Too many hours of contact through excessive softening of the fibrin would have blurred the stains. Instead, the shroud presents blood stains in perfect harmony with the laws of coagulation and with the precise time frame for transferring via homologous and fibrinolysis, a scientifically demonstrated period of 36 hours, which would correspond to the approximately 36 hours Jesus remained in the sepulcher between burial and his resurrection that first Easter Sunday. Experiments in this area have also been made by Professor Baima Bologna, a leading forensic expert, and Dr. Sebastiano Rodante, a pediatrician, and the results were published early in 1978. Their tests proved unquestionably that the presence of both aloes and myrrh on a fabric aided in bringing about the process of hemolysis and fibrinolysis, in the case of the shroud, the transfer of the bloodstains. Dozens more studies have been published in the intervening years by these men and many others. Monsignor Ricci, summarizing the shroud's distinct bloody testimony to the physical passion of the man of the shroud, excludes completely the theory that this linen is the result of a forger's brush and the latest scientific evidence does not contradict this statement. The shroud is not a document of faith, he told me. It's a document of scientific research. It was necessary to go back and restudy biblical, apocryphal, patristic, archaeological, and historical sources, Jewish and Roman law, as well as that of other Middle Eastern peoples. Above all, it was necessary to undertake an accurate geometric and medical-legal examination of the imprints. Now, these multiple aspects of research into the problem of authenticity and identification of the man of the shroud posed a formidable challenge involving many nations. Foremost among these problems for syndenologists, scholars of the Shroud, was determining its provenance and its odyssey, concluding with its final resting place in the Guarini Chapel of St. John's Cathedral in Turin.
exact and detailed documentation of the Shroud's history in the centuries immediately following the death of Christ is wanting due to historical and even juridical factors. The troubled history of Jerusalem in that period, the lack of freedom and expression enjoyed by Christians in that part of the world, and even the Jewish law that considered as unclean anything having to do with death so that any violation of the tomb, such as taking of a shroud, even for a relic, was punishable by death. Thus, in this obscure period when the shroud's history seems untraceable, these voids in its odyssey can be accounted for if one considers the fear of contamination with death-related objects by the Jews, the hostility to the new Christians, and the onslaught of invasions and sacking by vandals so that had the precious relic been preserved by Jesus' disciples, it would have been kept well hidden until safer conditions made it possible to openly expose and venerate the sacred object. In the first centuries after Christ, frequent indirect references to this burial linen were made, and only in the post-Constantine period was it named explicitly and displayed openly. Historical testimonials place it in Jerusalem prior to the 11th century. Towards 1005, it was transferred to Constantinople, and chronicles a century later ascribed to its presence there when they recorded that Louis VII of France, on an official visit to that city in 1147, venerated the Holy Shroud. They also tell us that only 10 years later, in 1157, Abbot Nicholas Samurtson, while making an inventory of the relics in Constantinople, included the Holy Shroud on his list. The first clear references to its presence there in the Monastery of St. Mary of Blackernay were made by Robert de Clary, a knight from Picardy, who took part in the capture of Constantinople in 1204. As a spoil of war, the shroud was taken to France and kept first at Liray, where contemporary chronicles explicitly mention its regular expositions there. Its owner, Marguerite de Charny, made a gift of it in 1452 to the Duke of Savoy in Chambéry, where it remained until its transfer to Turin in 1578. It was in the chapel specifically built for the shroud by the Duke of Savoy that a fire broke out in 1532, and this relic was partially damaged when the heat caused the molten silver of the reliquary to penetrate and burn the fine linen. Nuns were ordered to repair the cloth and their stitchwork could be seen for years. Now this fire and subsequent repair work has a very important bearing on experiments that have been done to indicate the shroud's age. Well, that's all the time we have today to talk about the famed Shroud of Turin, believed, as I said, to be the linen cloth that wrapped the body of the crucified Jesus during his three days in the tomb. Join me next week for part two, a final look at the Shroud. Can we answer the question, who is the man of the Shroud? For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, Go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.